Hello listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Tanya Hewitt to the show to talk about safety. We have a really good discussion around safety and challenging the norms that we see in terms of policing and monitoring for compliance, and some of the different skill sets that are out there and how they're changing. And we also talk about core values and values in general and what that actually means. Um, I learned a ton talking to Tanya. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And before we get started, a quick message from our sponsor, Nano Precise. Hello, listeners. This is Steve Doby, one of your co-hosts of the Maintenance Disrupted podcast. As you know, we have a sponsor, NanoPrecise, and each week we've been bringing you a machine doctor to the rescue that outlines how NanoPrecise was able to save their clients downtime and money. This week is no different. Machine Doctor was able to spot an early fault in a gearbox, saving costs for a pulp and paper giant. If you want to find out more about this or any other machine doctor, or just more about NanoPrecise, go to nanoprecise.io. Or you can always contact Blair and myself, and we'll get you in touch with somebody from the NanoPrecise team. Thanks for listening. Now here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I've got Tanya Hewitt from Beyond Safety Compliance with me today. How is it going, Tanya? Just fine, Stephen. Yes, so um, I, I named my company Beyond Safety Compliance in order to try to get the message out there that um, just being compliant is not enough. You know, we need... There are a whole lot of people who think, oh, yeah, okay, so I know the law, I know the regulation, we've met that, and that's fine. But stopping there is, is not the best place to be. In order to be able to get into a much better place in your company, it's best to try to shoot higher than that. Well, so I that's... That's a, kind of the background on why I named my company Beyond Safety Compliance. <laughs> I love that. And I'm really excited to dive into that a little more. And But before we do, I do just want you to, if you can just introduce yourself to the audience so they know a little bit more about you uh, and uh, then we'll go from there. Sure. So um, my name is Tanya Hewitt and I come from the unceded territories of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe peoples which is otherwise known as Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Um, the, I have a background in, uh, a lot of background in regulation, actually. I had worked for a regulatory agency for a long time. Um, so I, I have been a tick boxer in my past. And uh, with having experienced that on the kind of the police side, I began to realize how not helpful that approach is. So I began to realize that uh, the longer I spent in that kind of environment, the more likely I would just be adapting to that kind of mindset. And I thought, no, this is not the right thing. We shouldn't just be going out policing people on 
a tick box mentality. We, we really need to have something far more holistic in order to be able to ensure that companies are, you know, healthy and growing and doing the right thing. So what does that more holistic view look like? Without so, going too deep, because we only have an hour. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. So as I had uh, mentioned, um, being being compliant is okay, but it's just a first step. I mean, uh, more to, to tie this to something that was in the news fairly recently, there was a news story that came out called the Pandora Papers. And this is where a whole lot of people celebrities and sports names and 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 the, and the like uh government officials had been um found to be investing in offshore accounts kind of thing and a lot of the um defense from a lot of these people were that well i i hired a lawyer i i checked with the law everything was legal and that's okay but look at what that got them into. When an investigative reporter found out um, that they were investing in offshore oil accounts or offshore accounts kind of thing, um, trying to uh, evade paying taxes in their home country and so forth, um, it didn't look very good on them. And that's the whole idea. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's enough because ethics is a far higher standard by which to hold yourself than just the minimum bar of compliance. So that's kind of a tangible example from the, the recent news that I can pull to show very definitively that even though you might be following the law, it doesn't mean that that's right. It doesn't mean that that's enough. You have to do better than that in order to A, feel good about yourself and, you know, make sure that you can sleep at night and B, to uh, ensure that you are doing good in the world writ large. Yeah. So one thing I see a lot out there is uh, honestly, just about every company I've worked for, work with, says safety is number one. Now, I've also worked at a lot of these places and it's very clear that production is number one. Absolutely. So, so when, when I see safety, uh, safety is our number one priority. And you have these on ISO type banners outside of the company. If they truly believed in that, they would stop doing what they're doing. Because what they are admitting is that we have high hazard activities here that could be very dangerous for people. And uh, safety is our number one priority. But if that were honestly true, then you wouldn't even engage in the hazardous activity in the first place. You wouldn't let a plane take off. You wouldn't drive a car because an undriven car can't crash. Um, you know, and a plane that doesn't fly can't fall to the ground. I don't think people understand the implications of saying that safety is, no, is our number one priority. Priorities, for one thing, um, are negotiable. Uh, often you'll see in, in boardrooms and in executive suites where what is our priority this quarter? Priorities are moved around all the time. So that's one problem with calling safety as your number one priority. Labeling it as a priority is an issue because it can be moved around. I think what 
companies are meaning to say is that safety is a core value that we live here. But um, in order to be able to call something uh, a value, it's best to understand what type of value it is. I had uh, labeled that core. So let me describe, let me describe what a core value is. A core value uh, is something that you are willing to die for. I mean, you, that's the hill you die on. When somebody breaches your core value, you get a level of anger that you can hardly control within yourself because it is so core to your being that you will go to the ends of the earth to defend this. So when you describe it in that sense, most people and most organizations don't have a whole lot of core values. Like there are few, like two or three at maximum. Because, because they are so important to you and, and you will literally, that's the hill you are willing to die on. So um, that's, uh, so I don't know how many companies are able to say that safety is a core value to them. It would be wonderful if they could, but I, from the number of stories that I've heard about people working in a lot of manufacturing type environments, I'm not entirely sure if that core value, because you live and breathe that core value, that's the other thing. I mean, you, this is this guides your decision making, it guides how you interact with others, it guides how you hire and how you, um, you, you uh, treat your clients and how you treat your suppliers and distributors and everything. So that core value is really imbued into the way that you live. Another type of value, though, is what I call the accepted values. So these are values that are more generic to the group that you identify yourselves with. So that could be your industry, that could be your community, your country, you know, whatever it is that you are, what group you're identifying yourselves with. So these are going to be far more shared with others than core values are. And these um, are basically the rules of the game. They're the minimum bar. They are the compliance bar in the, in the ethics field in order to be able to engage in that group that, that you're engaging with. So like integrity might belong here. A lot of people say they have integrity. And if integrity is one of those types of values, um, A, you have to be sure that you're living that, but B, um, that might be just the minimum bar that you have in, in, in whatever group you're talking about. Another type of value is um, aspirational values. So these are values that you would like to have, but you don't have now. And you're, you will know this from looking at your actions. So you look at, you know, your perform what you do. Um, as a company or even as an individual, and and see if your actions line up with that that type of value. And if they don't, that's okay. Uh, this value can be aspirational. It's something to work towards. We all need to be, you know, uh, striving for a continual improvement. So there's no problem with having aspirational values. Although if all your values are aspirational, you have to start questioning, well, you know, <laughs> who am I kind of thing. So surely, surely there are some values that not all values are going to be in the aspirational category. 
And finally, the most dangerous set of values are the accidental values. These are the ones that, especially in a Western society, we tend to just pick up by accident because we're not thinking about this stuff. And it's very much uh, along the keeping up with the Joneses kind of mentality. Oh, well, they're doing it, therefore I should be doing it. If those core values mean something to you, then one size never fits all. You know, we need to start realizing that um, a lot of these types of things are not generic. They are very specific to the organization that is interested in going down this kind of path. So I've done a lot of talking there, Stephen. I'm not sure if that was of value to you, but uh, that's my... Story I honestly it. just learned a lot more about values than I ever have known it, known before. So no, that was great. Um, and I had so many questions pop through my head while you were while you were going through that. And one of the ones that really stuck out to me then is, so what is safety? What value do we typically have it on? Because uh, you know it seems like it's more in that aspirational value space. You know, uh, there's a, a good case to be put forward for that. But again, you, you, your question initially, almost what is safety, is almost a better one. Because I suspect, and I've said this at, at uh, various uh, groups that I've been with, if everybody were to write down their definition of safety, we would get as many definitions as there are people in the room. It is a very emergent type of term that eludes a very precise definition. And um, obviously, the world of human and organizational performance in which I am engaged has really taken this on to try to get people to recognize that we don't all have the same perspective of what safety even means. Although, we do have an enormous history of safety that harkens back to um, approximately 1914 or so that a lot of people still think is the reigning definition of safety. And that comes from uh, uh, a piece of work done by uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor called The Principles of Scientific Management. Um, He wasn't intending to, I think, address a safety audience. I don't think safety was much of a a concern at at that time in our history. But the way that he talked about being able to come up with principles on how to run a company according to scientific management have imbued the way that we practice safety even today. This pandemic might have been able to shed some light on how problematic that actually was. I mean, in the so let me go back. In in Taylor's treatise, he talks about how you need to be able to oversee your workers and watch what they're doing and extract the maximum you can out of them in the time that they are working. And don't don't let them get lazy. Don't let them, you know, this is all of this kind of understanding is from an antiquated view of work. If we put this in the into the pandemic, um, all of the sudden, a lot of supervisors at 
you know, energy generation plants or whatever essential workers were out there couldn't go out to work. They couldn't supervise. So they had to start doing what they were doing from home, which a lot of them complained they couldn't do because what they did was was police what people were doing out on the front line. And um, from the podcasts that I have been listening to, um, the evidence shows that giving workers more autonomy, which the pandemic kind of by default did, the frontline workers didn't have somebody over their shoulder. They didn't have to get a, a whole bunch of um, approvals, you know, going up five levels in order to be able to do something. They were given far more autonomy to do their work. And not only were there fewer incidents and accidents, but production didn't suffer. Production became even more efficient. So it started to beg the question, what are we doing in safety if all we are doing is impeding workers from getting the work done? It's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile question. Yeah, and I want to stop here and talk about this one because this is, um, you know, so I have a story from my first job at a university where I would, I would drive an hour out of town, up in Canada, middle of winter. And when I, I always arrived, you know, 15, 20 minutes early, because I had such a long drive, I gave myself a bit of extra buffer time. And maybe I was eager because it was my first job. And then there was one day where I got there and I got there and I, like, I was sweating. I was like, I should not have driven in that weather. Like this is, this was the day where I compromised my safety to get to work. And then the, one of the managers of the company, he saw me there. He's like, you know, Steve, this is when I get the opportunity to call people out for, for making the decision not to come to work. And he took the wrong approach. He's like, whenever you arrive, I know because you have the longest way to go. I know that everybody else can arrive too. And I'm sitting there kind of panicked about this because I'm like I shouldn't have driven like this was a mistake I put my life on the line to get get to work and for what like a day's pays you know um and so when I think about the pandemic now and I think about that and that one really comes to my mind frequently because I still drive frequently for work and I drive in not great weather but what the pandemic has opened and I think if a company really has safety as a core value or at least one of those higher level values, then we will we'll make that decision to say, look, it's not safe to drive to work all the time. Having more people on the road, and like typically there's one person in these cars. Um, another core value is typically energy efficiency and being green these days. And you're sitting there, you have all these people driving to work when most of those jobs we have proven can be done from home, at least somewhat of the time. So when we're looking at safety and we're looking at a company that is fully safe, allowing your people to have that option to work from home when conditions are bad or even just any day, because there's always that risk of an animal coming out and jumping. And, you know, you talked about it right at the beginning. If you were, safety was your first priority, then you wouldn't ever get into a car. And so like, there's an opportunity now where we understand that that old management style is outdated and that working from home can be more productive. I've definitely found that for myself. 
the thing I lost was a little bit of uh, work-life balance. Uh, but I think um, that's a different conversation. But like when we, we start looking at these things and how, pro- how productive you can be from home and the fact that you're saving people's times, um, you know, we talk about psychological safety often on the show as well. And like giving be- people back potentially two hours of their day, like those are huge benefits to it. And, you know, it doesn't have to be every day, but like it's, I love to see this shift that we have, both in terms of the safety that we can get from it and, you know, the personal enjoyment that mindset that people can get out of work from doing it. I've also kind of started rambling here about it also. <laughs> well, I think one thing that uh, perhaps, I mean, one of the phrases that I, I really bristle at is uh, back to normal. Um, I don't think normal was very good for a lot of people. And I don't think going back to something that was not very good is something we should be aspiring to do. So I would really like to, to um, try to counter that narrative with being able to do something much different than we had been before. When you talked about going to work that that fateful day, you made it, but it was um, yeah, harrowing driving to getting there. If, if that morning before you left work, A, your employer knew how to contact you, so that's one, and B, followed through on contacting you and said, Stephen, you know what? I see the weather forecast for the, this morning. I'm not sure your commute is going to be a really good one today. How do you feel about, how do you feel about driving in today? That kind of conversation is what needs to start taking place far more often than it currently does. Instead of just focusing exclusively on the outcomes and the outputs, see if people are comfortable with where they are in undertaking that work. That is where a lot of the human and organizational performance world is heading. Checking in with the frontline workers before they undertake anything, because, I mean, I let me just talk to you about a story that I saw on LinkedIn um, earlier during the pandemic. This is going a little bit off track from what you just said, but I yeah. think it's valuable. Absolutely, go for it. So a, um, a forklift driver was, um, it came to work, and was fairly sullen. He wasn't normally this way. He was usually jovial and usually interactive with his colleagues, usually joking in the lunchroom, usually very extroverted and, and outgoing. But this particular day, he wasn't. He didn't talk to anybody. He was very closed, didn't, didn't, you know, interact with anybody. His colleagues noticed this right away because this is not him. This is not who he normally is. But because of our, you know, discomfort with this kind of stuff, they said, oh, just let him be, you know, don't, don't interfere. It's not my problem. Don't get into things that don't concern me. Let him figure out his own problems. Well, Later on that day, he, um, he killed somebody with, with heavy equipment. 
So then things started to become a big deal and everybody started to, to figure out what, what was going on. Was he on drugs? Was he, you know, inebriated? Was it, you know, all this kind of thing. It turned out that the night before his wife had told him that she wanted a divorce. And that's what was on his mind the whole next day. So he wasn't intoxicated, but he was definitely impaired. He was impaired emotionally. And his colleagues knew it, but were too afraid to say anything because the, all they saw was this outward understanding of, of his behavior being different. Who knows? Had they intervened, maybe there would have been a different outcome. But overall, I think we need to start being more curious about people at an emotional level, because we can make a real difference in people's lives if we were to at least reach out when people seem to be distraught. There are countless stories of PE strangers reaching out, even on social media kind of thing, um, individually to an individual and, and having a profound impact on people's lives. Like you don't know how profound your impact can be, but, but you do have that potential to have an impact on somebody, but you have to be able to break out of this, um, this shell that we all have built for ourselves to not engage you know, emotionally or personally with people at work. Yeah. And, and that is a tragic story. And whenever we like, and we see it all the time and we do lots of root cause analysis and like, I know the safety industry does their uh, root cause analysis and it's not always called the same thing, but the principles are the same. We're, we're getting down to why this failure happened, whether it's a failure in safety, whether it's a failure of a machine or a failure in something else. But when we start to dive into those root causes, and I don't know if you've met Bob Latino before, but he's he's done a lot of root cause analysis, both in the medical system, the you know big major failures that cost people's lives and big safety concerns. And he's done lots of root cause analysis on very small chronic issues. And what happens with just about every single one of them is it comes down to people and the decisions they made and the reasons why they made those decisions. And it's never about taking, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, and it's never about punishing those people. But if we can understand the reason for the decision that was made, then we can make a meaningful difference. And whether it's in the processes we put in or the curiosity we show to other people, um, or a variety of other things. Um, but sorry. Uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. <laughs> so there's a couple of things I'd like to pick up on there. Absolutely. Our, what you've just described the local rationality principle, being concerned, being interested and curious about people doing the best they can in the environment in which they find themselves. And that is our starting point when we're starting any kind of deeper dive or investigation or, or something, we have to keep that front of mind that people do the best they can, given the environment in which they find themselves. Um, 
when you were talking about doing uh, investigations, I was just listening to uh, a podcast by Todd Conklin, who was talking about how it's it's really interesting that a lot of our investigations go after fictitious events, you know, because they're written in the counterfactual almost always, you know, if only he had done this, this would not have happened. Well, okay, but that's not what you're, what happened, right? And we, we write these, these investigation reports in this fictitious world of something that didn't, didn't actually occur. What a lot of the safety world is looking at, the, the human organizational performance world is looking at is normal work. In Hallnagel's words, what is happening when nothing bad is happening? Be curious about the, the sundry everyday stuff because that's where you will find the, the richest information. I mean, there's so many things wrong about waiting for an accident to happen. One, you're sitting there waiting for something to happen. Uh, B, the, which, is, which is not a productive use of time, sitting there waiting. Number two, the safer an industry becomes, um, the fewer accidents they're going to have. So your data becomes much uh, less rich as you go forward. You know, like a, aviation had tons of accidents in the 50s, right? There were every second plane seemed to crash at that, in that era. Now, so few planes crash, if they only looked at planes crashing, they would never be learning anything. You know, the, you have to, uh, uh, nuclear power is an even better example. You know, you'd never learn anything. You'd have to, you have to start looking at, at normal work and not just deviation from expected values. So work as imagined is this invariant black line or depending on the background of Todd Conklin's slides could be an invariant white line. It depends on what kind of background he has. But the point being that it is invariant. And these are typically um, identified as being invariant because they are written down. So if it's written down, if it's a law, if it's a regulation, if it's a policy, if it's a procedure, if it's a job aid, it's written down. If it's a checklist, you know, all of these things are written down. And the person who wrote that in the first place had a mindset of what the work is going to be like. But the problem is that the work as it's actually performed is almost never aligned with what the, the person who wrote the words dreamed it to be. Because if it's written down, then it's static and it doesn't change. And in the real work, in our real work lives, things are changing all the time. And we are adapting constantly to these things. So Being, I, I, go I, ahead. I want to question this a little bit because we, and I might have interrupted you before you got to your full point there, but you're right when you know, things change all the time. But then we think about the safest industries. You just mentioned nuclear, airline industries. Those are documented so fully with every job plan. It tells you, you know, turn this bolt 
three quarters of a or a 60 degree turn type of thing and then it's the appropriate tightness and so how how do we manage that where like to be safe and reliable you have to have things so heavily documented but that doesn't allow for the the deviate deviations that come with a normal day or change or I might have interrupted you too soon, though. <laughs> well, let me uh, let me just offer you a counterexample on that. So, um, uh, Fukushima Daiichi is the is the nuclear power plant that most people know about in 2011. That uh, you know the tsunami had overtaken, um, you know that that particular power plant, and because of the way that the fuel was stored, a lot of radiation got it got escaped, and the the control room couldn't be they couldn't regain con. Um, uh, control of the control room. Mm-hmm. But Fukushima Daini was not compromised. And there's all sorts of stuff written about this um, because there were no procedures for this. And Fukushima Daini was very much in this space, kind of like in this pandemic, where you have to figure out, you take weak signals and you you have you mini experiment constantly and you have to try to make decisions in the face of incomplete information all the time. And uh, Fukushima Daini is a success story. It could have easily ended up as, as Daiichi, but they had a little bit more time and they, they used it in order to react or respond differently to the changing information as it was coming to them. So even though nuclear power is a very heavily regulated industry, um, that is a a classic example of where I don't care how well regulated you are, it didn't help. (laughs) Like (laughs) that was a space where it just wasn't appropriate to be regulated. Um, Well, talk about uh, aviation, talk about uh, Sully. They know that if Sully hadn't landed that plane in the Hudson River and actually gone through the procedures in order to know what exactly to do, it would have taken him more time than he was in the air to actually read all of the procedures that he had to read in order to know what the best thing to do. So again, um, you can we can deceive ourselves thinking that nuclear power and aviation, there, I've given you two counterexamples there, um, are so heavily regulated and therefore everybody is uh, abiding by every single rule that is written down. This isn't true. However, there are, and this is where Tony Mushara's concepts might be very helpful. Where, when you have, and I, I'd almost need to pull the book to be able to get his five classic um, um, characteristics of something that uh, you need to spend more time in figuring out. But one is that it's it's non-reversible. If you over-tighten a bolt, that seems to me to be something that you can reverse. You over-tighten it, you realize you over-tighten it, you can back it off, you know? If it's non-reversible, once you do something, and you can't, you can't go backwards. That's one characteristic. Another is that a person is at the distal end of it. So um, you are depending on the person to do a certain action in a certain way. Otherwise, the world is going to blow up or you're going to lose the plant or whatever. That's another characteristic of types of actions 
that need to be looked at even more critically. So you can filter some of the things, and I, there, there are a few more, and I just can't recall them off the top of my head, but you can filter the myriad of actions that take place in any kind of organization to those very few characteristics and use those in order to be very attentive to how you do the work and trying to be closer to the black line than than a lot of the work in the in the blue line but to get back to that blue line black line concept the majority of work um, takes place on this very variable blue line looking more like a sinusoidal curve or an irregular sinusoidal curve, almost an irregular function kind of thing, which sometimes intersects with the invariant black line. Sometimes it is according to, you know, the way that uh, the people who wrote the words thought it would be. Sometimes it's even better. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes the work is even better than what is predicted. And, and sometimes it is below standard and yet nothing bad happens. It's only when a hazard intersects with that blue line that we see something bad happening. And that's where what I was talking about, it depends very much on a whole lot of latent factors on how the person might have been set up to fail from years of non-maintenance, years of just uh, living with something that wasn't the way it should have been by, uh, you know, having MacGyvering being the way you do things around here, all of this kind of stuff. Um, all of that will build up over time and lead to something that um, could intersect with normal work intersecting with a hazard. So we had Sully as the example, and he didn't follow procedure, and it turned out well. How yes. many other pilots would that have worked out for? That's an excellent question. So, and, and same with the nuclear power plant. Like, uh, it's an excellent, excellent question. Because I think now um, we might not have as many pilots who are willing to trust their own basic piloting skills um, over those of the automatic pilot or whatever training they got by following a procedure kind of thing. And uh, this, this is critical because if we lose the Sully's and the, uh, and, and the uh, Fukushima Daini leaders, um, we need, we need, well, I mean, let's just, make an assumption that they are from a generation that is all retiring now and there aren't any more of those people well then that puts us into extreme peril for any similar type of circumstance that that, that can arise but i don't believe that's true i think there are people who can start to see outside the box, who can see emerging circumstances, but they need to be able to practice this. And that's where working, that's where organizations can come into play to be able to allow people to work on these improvisation type of skills in the workplace in low hazard environments. And that's where I was talking about, not on the critical ones, not on the ones that aren't reversible and that, uh, you know, a person has to do the right thing in order for the world not to end. But there are plenty of, of 
of tasks that occur in, in organizations where the stakes are not so high. And that is where worker autonomy might be more valuable as a way for workers to start practicing this improvisation skill that they uh, need to be able to develop so that it'll be there for them when the time calls for it. So when we when we think about maintenance, and um, I can't, can't remember what the proper order is, but either it's a safe organization is a reliable or a safe piece of equipment is a reliable piece of equipment or a reliable piece of equipment is a safe piece of equipment. I can't remember the order exactly, but the, the principles of it are, are the same. Like if you have a piece of equipment, an airplane, uh, a mining truck, doesn't matter. If it's well-maintained, it's less likely to break down and therefore keep the operator safe, keep maintenance people safe because you're now doing maintenance in a controlled environment rather than the variable environment that's out in the field. And so when we think about creativity and we think about where they get to make the decisions on following the procedure or, or being more creative in it, I don't know if maintenance is the right place for that. Like in Sully's, Sully's case, we have a pilot in a dire situation has to make a decision. And there's the procedure to follow, which somebody decided in some room gives the the plane a best chance of getting everybody down safely. He didn't follow that, still got everybody down safely and is a hero. If it went the other way, they would have said, you didn't follow procedure. Sully's fully at fault here, right? Now, when we think about it in maintenance and how we maintain the equipment now, and you mentioned you have to do this, and I can't remember exactly what you called it. You have to do this or the plant explodes. I think that's the space that maintenance lives in more often. Now, the decisions maintenance people live use to do some of this maintenance, in particular, that variable maintenance that I talked about, that's where we introduce specific risk to them. So like if um, I work in mining, and so if you are working on a haul truck in the middle of a pit, you don't choose where that haul truck breaks down. And you have to look at each situation and figure out the safest way to do it. If that truck is full of um, dirt or if it's fully loaded, then we've got extra risks involved. And does the creativity come when we're looking at some of those risks and the variability? Because that truck is fully loaded. Those tires are at risk of exploding because that's just when they're at the highest risk, highest pressure, all these things, it lines up but we still make that decision to go and work on that truck and get it working again. Now we make specific procedures. You got to go straight from the front on so that you don't have spill rock or anything else. And I guess my question is, is, is how do we manage that? Because our technicians, our people in the field, they don't want to work in the airline industry. That's why they don't work there. They don't want to sit there and have um, the maintenance engineers in the background tell them how many, how much they have to turn a bolt. They don't, they don't want that. Um, but at the same time, we look at it and we look at the safest way to do it. And we look at the airline industry and the lack of failures and other things. And we think, how do we get closer to this space? So where do you see that? Where, where do you see that um, um, creativity piece and, and how that fits in, in, in that kind of environment? 
So I think for the, the first thing to do is to talk to the frontline workers and understand as best as possible the work that they do. Um, because it's more often that a lot of organizations see the relationship as almost dictatorial from manager to uh, frontline workers. Mm-hmm. But if we can switch this and have the workers as the people who who are experts in what they do and to learn from them, um, we will be all the better for it so that a lot of the upper decisions um, that might well impact like, here I'll give you I'll give you an example from years ago. Um, the okay, this is an example of having the safety department as an ind- independent entity in the organization as being problematic. So, um, the exact job titles, I don't recall, but one of the vice presidents couldn't go to a meeting and asked the safety person to go to that meeting simply in order to fill her in and they knew each other and, you know, this kind of thing. But that safety person who otherwise was sitting in a closed office and nobody ever talked to unless something went wrong kind of thing, um, went to this financial meeting where they were talking about um, getting buses to remote airports and how um, it is it is annoying to have all these yellow buses in their in, you know in their suite of, of vehicles because they don't have a high resale value they'd rather go for the white buses that they can sell for for hire once they've outlived their useful usefulness in this particular and you know in this particular aspect and i think this was an air in air traffic control so that you know people would be going into airports remote airports you know at odd times of the year the safety person this was a financial decision right on on resale value of vehicles the safety person stood up and said, no, 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 you have no idea. Do you know how difficult it is to be able to see a white plane on snow, you know, in, in minus 30 in a Cessna? Like that's, it's almost impossible. We, we depend on the contrast of the yellow bus against the snow to know almost where the runway is. Like, you don't get it. You can't do that. This isn't, this isn't, I don't care what your financials are. We're talking that you have to talk to the people who actually do the work in order to even know that. You wouldn't otherwise know. Otherwise, it just looks like, you know, yellow buses, white buses, this, these ones are more expensive. You know, it looks as though that's the kind of decision. And it looks right if that's all you look at. But when you talk to the people who do the work, you talk to the air traffic controllers, you talk to the pilots, you'll get a much different story as, as to what is important. And that's what I'm talking about. If we start to talk to the maintainers uh, and understand their job, and understand maybe what is impeding them from doing their job more effectively. That is a conversation worth having. 
you know, what is it that the maintainers see as being a solution to some of the problems that they are encountering? That is a conversation worth having. But it's not worth going to the engineering department and dreaming this all up outside of engaging those who are actually doing the work. Absolutely. I love that story. And that's a that's a perfect I, I think that's a good example of of how to approach it. And and we are just about out of time. This is probably the fastest uh, I think one of these podcasts has gone for me. Um, <laughs> I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm excited to have you back at some point. Um, before we close out, though, um, you obviously have things going on. Um, how can people find you and what do you have coming up next? So, um, thanks again for this opportunity, Stephen, to talk about some of these things, because I love talking about these things, as maybe you could tell. Um, I uh, have a webinar series that people are free to join. Um, it happens on the third Wednesday of the month. Right now, I've committed to doing uh, sessions out to the end of 2022, so um, at least to, for another year, we'll still be running these. So that's, uh, that's something. I am on the brink of having my own podcast as well. So that would be something else that uh, I would hope that people might follow. It's going to be called Beyond the Minimum. Being able again to realize that uh, the minimum bar is not enough and we have to start striving for higher. And uh, the easiest way to uh, reach out to me is uh, through my LinkedIn profile. And, um, and yeah, that's, uh, that's me. <laughs> oh, that's great. I will put the links to um, your LinkedIn profile, your website, and, um, and uh, your webinar series there in the podcast description. And when your podcast is released, let me know. And I'm happy to let everybody, let our listeners know. And uh, always great to have another podcast out there, especially on, excuse me, something as important as safety. <laughs> so thank you, Tanya. I really appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot <laughs> and um, I'm excited to write down some questions for our next chat. Cause I think it's uh, going to be going to happen soon. Awesome. Um, <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you so much, Stephen.